that every person that we have known, that I have known, that has been to Oro has said not a bad thing about it. They've all said it was the best rehab they ever went to. Oro was created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to create a treatment center that basically uses compassion and connection rather than control. It sounds amazing. They have decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which we all love. We all love a good, as comfortable as possible detox. It's crucial. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. Newsweek rated them top five rehabs in the world. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. Go to www.ororecovery.com and check it out if you need help. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? It's an amazing app on your phone. It is like having a Sober Buddy with you at all times. It is an app that helps you maintain a mindfulness state a state connected to sobriety, a state connected to mindfulness, a state connected to a community of sober people. They have a free sober tracker. They have a free trial. Seven days you can kick around the app. Go to YourSoberBuddy.com, go to the App Store, go to the Google Play Store, and let Sober Buddy be a part of your sober journey. Follow Your Sober Buddy on social media. They're about to start doing a lot of community-minded activities. So join the Sober Buddy community on Instagram, on Facebook, and in the App Store and the Google Play Store. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our good friends at Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace 
talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult and our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or a loved one, Soberlink can help. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial technology to verify identity. That is facial recognition technology to verify your identity. It has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used. And it sends results directly to your specified contacts. So there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com dopey. Do you love dopey? If you love dopey, go to Patreon. www.patreon.com dopeypodcast. Sign up. Two bucks gets you a ton of content. Five bucks gets you into the Dopey Patreon Zoom that we do every month. Super fun. Ten bucks gets you stickers. Fifteen gets you socks. And it's just so much more Dopey. Videos, music, animation. The DopeyCon video is coming only to Patreon. Go there. Go to DopeyPodcast.com. Get the merch. DM me if you want any special hats. Enough with the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I am in the village of Lower Manhattan with my friend, Erin Carr, she wrote a book called Strung Out. You should get it. Erin, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. <laughs> we just had this fucking debate about geography and the East Village, the West Village, and the village. And um, it's funny because I said we were in the East Village, which we aren't. No. You're right. And and when I was a kid, the, the, the highlights of the village mm-hmm. when I was a kid my sister would go to 8th Street to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, yeah. That was the village. Uh, Forbidden Planet was mm-hmm. once a gigantic science fiction uh, comic book shop and now is very tiny. Uh, it's not that small. It used to be like a block. My, it used to be across the street. It was two different yeah. places. Astor Place, yeah. Canal Jeans. No, but is Canal Jeans south of your village? Yes. Yeah, it's south. Because it's that's really what sort of separate. That's like the beginning of Soho. Is it? I mean, Canal, that's like so be, between Soho and Tribeca is Canal. Yeah. But Canal Jeans was on Houston, not on Canal, wasn't no, it? No, Canal Jeans was on Broadway. But we're not going to make this no. show about New York City <laughs> geography. Welcome to the show. A lot of stuff is happening. Yes. This week or last week, Howard Stern had Bruce Springsteen in the studio. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a I'm not a major Bruce Springsteen fan, but it was like one of the best interviews I've ever heard. I love him. Are you a major Bruce Springsteen fan? I wouldn't say I'm a major Bruce Springsteen fan, but I really like him as a person. You need to listen to like this his interview. Music. I've seen clips. I need to listen to the whole interview. It's yeah. really good. Really, really good. And um, and then I, I listened to his, he, Howard did a show, and I love Howard. 
but he's, he's really he's been fading. Howard's been fading. Yeah. He's been doing worse and worse shows. So for him to do this really, really good Bruce Springsteen show was it warmed my heart. And then he did a post Bruce Springsteen show mm-hmm. uh, where he talked about how amazing the Bruce Springsteen show was. Right. And it's funny because last week we had the goalie from the Mighty Ducks, uh, Sean Weiss mm-hmm. on, and he was like my Bruce Springsteen episode. Because everybody loved it. It was the just feedback, really, yeah. it was really, really good. It felt really good. Um, and then I felt kind of sad that Goldberg from the Mighty Ducks is my Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> it was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I just recommend anybody that can ev- either like steal a serious subscription or anything. It's a, it's, it's a good interview. Good it's really good. And yeah. he plays a bunch of music. It's like fucking... Really good. It's yeah. really what I would like to be able to do one day. And and Sean Weiss was incredible. And of course, you're always incredible on the show. <laughs> and and our guest today, Maya Solovitz, was another sort of Bruce Springsteen uh, thing. But she, you know, she's so also good. studying to sing Maya Solovitz, and she has uh, right. Solovitz, and she has a keyboard in her office, and she refused to sing anything <sighs> for me. That could have. She's done, got a great voice. She could have done Hungry Heart. I mean, her speaking voice, I really like. I want to try to start getting musicians on the show to and, play. and to play while they do the thing. That would be fun. I was just invited back to the Park City Song Summit next year, <gasps> fun. which I'm excited about. And maybe we'll do talks with music. So I feel good about that. I got this note. OK, you ready for this? Ready. I think you're going to it's going to be in your wheelhouse. This note. <laughs> um, hi, Dave. I'm a drug addict from the West Coast, and although I've quit doing hard drugs, I do still drink, so I don't use the word sober. Maybe clean is fitting, but that's not why I'm writing. I'm tired of hearing all this, I'm not political, can't we respect both sides talk on the podcast. Conservative politics is the whole reason the drug war exists in the first place. It's the reason the fentanyl crisis exists. It's why we can't get supervised injection sites in America, and it's why getting into rehab is so difficult for so many people. Stop being a right-wing apologist and take a stand. You're acting like drug addiction occurs in a vacuum. If leftist politics were adopted widely, it's likely Chris and hundreds of thousands just like him would still be alive. Mm. It is their fault. Full stop. All drug addicts should be left-wing. If they aren't, they aren't paying attention. The right wants us dead. Thanks, Zach. Uh, I doubt you'll actually read this on air because you detest bringing politics onto Dopey, but if you do, it's okay to use my first name. P.S. I love the show. Just an angry leftist over here. Thanks for all you do. And uh, I said last week on the show that the last time I voted was 1992. Oh. <sighs> it was a good year. Bill Clinton had just persuaded me to vote on because the Arsenio that was Hall the fir- show. Because that was the first election that we could vote in. Yeah, there was the presidential my, it election. Was the that first, we were- it was the first and last for me. Oh my um, and then there's some negative talk about that mm. on uh, in Dopey Nation on Facebook, where Professor Sarah Buck Dowd is questioning me for mm-hmm. that. And, and, and this is the truth. Um, I am apolitical. I, uh, I think of the great Bob Marley who once said, Rasta don't work for no CIA. And I enjoy being apolitical, but I'm going to tell you this, political Aaron Carr. Yes. 
uh, I'm going to register to vote this year. Good. I mean, not for tomorrow, right. but for next year. But can I, can I just comment on that really oh, quickly? Oh, please. So, A, I, I think that it's a myth that anybody is apolitical because we are political in everything that we consume, where we spend our money, how we spend our time, and the people we support, whether it's, you know, by the movies we watch, the music we listen to, blah, blah, blah. Politics. Is it though? So what does it say about me that I am watching reruns of Oz right now politically? Well, I'm not. OK, I'm not going to go into a whole dissertation about what every single choice you make says about you. But if you really didn't like HBO as a company, if they did things that like threatened access to women's health care for your daughter's futures and you still supported them, it would be you would be making you would be taking a stand politically to either support them or not so that's what i mean but what i want to say in response to the email is to yes zach. to zach is that yes a hundred percent our overdose crisis is is a result of the war on drugs and our drug policies i believe that with every cell of me but where he's wrong is that it's not just right-wing politicians democrats put us in this position as much as Republicans did. Now, here's the good and bad news about that. Uh-oh. No, the good and bad news is this, is that I 100% agree that, like, in broad strokes, leftist policies allow for, for social support programs to get more support, right, which is good for people who need it. Um, but... The good news is, is that because the overdose crisis has affected every demographic in this country, one of the things that I do in my spare time is some advocacy work with nonprofits, basically lobbying politicians to vote on drug policy legislation. So the mental health task force, which oversees a lot of this upcoming legislation, is a bipartisan um, task force and the good news about that is that you are beginning to see both sides come to the table on agreeing with things that have to do with with uh, drug policy reform we have a long way to go but I'm hopeful <laughs> that we can get there and yes I think everybody should vote and and uh, I don't think anyone is is in the dark about what my political affiliations are. See, my my feeling around it, and I'm just going to say this really quickly. Mm -hmm. As a spectator, it feels like everybody's full of shit, and it feels mm -hmm. like it's a lot of bullshit. Yes. And it grosses me out. That's yeah. And that's my take, and that's why I'm apolitical. But I've been saying, uh, Alexis, play NPR News lately. Right. Or Alexa, whatever her name is. Play NPR <laughs> News. Because I feel like lately... I don't know what's happening yeah. at, at all. And I and I should know a little bit more. Right. So and my dad challenged me at the end of the show last week saying that I know so much about popular culture, implying that I don't know anything else. So I think I am gonna try and learn some new stuff and, I have, and keep track a I little have bit. Something funny but to it tell grosses me out. Right. It grosses me out. It it well because it is gross. I have something funny to tell you. So I was in one of these meetings about possibly going to speak before the mental health task force in DC and somebody asked me you know I was talking about drug policy and the success of safe injection supervised injection sites in New York and and harm reduction efforts in New York State although we still have a long way to go kind of leads the charge nationwide in terms of harm reduction so 
what uh, somebody asked me, they said after I was like going on and on, they're like, you know, oh, that you know, the way that you talk about it is so great. Would you ever consider a congressional run? All your skeletons are already out there. And I like thought about it for a second. I said, no. You've got to be fucking kidding me. So I could say, I could say elite equestrian, strung out author and congresswoman. Well, Aaron but Carr. my answer was Ask no. Aaron my Carr. answer was no yes. because I don't hate my family. If I didn't have, if I didn't have congressional children, run, yeah. Are you sitting around thinking? Of, are you daydreaming about yourself in some no, nice I pants just, suit? No, I just told you that I said no. Capitol Hill. I told you that I said no. I think that I'm better served behind the scenes and meeting with legislative aides to get to try and push lobby and push this legislation through. I think you should consider it just so that Dopey could get a little bit more <laughs> attention. I mean, I, I would like to see that. And uh, I just need to say this. We have Dopey candles. Nobody's buying them. Buy them. Christmas is coming. Hanukkah too. The goose is getting fat. <laughs> Buy some fucking Dopey candles. It's available if you click the North Ave Candle Company link on the Dopey homepage, which of course is www.dopeypodcast.com. It's also available at www.northavcandlecompany.com slash collection slash dopey. Get a dopey candle. There might be a Christmas candle available if the designer gets her act together, but we'll <laughs> see if she does or if she doesn't. I need to tell you about this. I spent the day with my four-year-old daughter yesterday. We went to a farm that we go to often mm -hmm. uh she's not interested in feeding the goats anymore she okay. said after the farm she said daddy that's not fun she oh, said wow. she said shit maybe take me back in two years she said because you've just done it too much she's uh, we haven't done it me and oh. Nora used to do it every every week oh. we would do it and susan's like not interested right. and then then i said okay well now we have to go to dick sporting goods and buy stuff for your sister <laughs> She's like, that's not fun. And <laughs> she gets so bored so quickly. And then sh she demanded a smoothie. She had a nice smoothie. Mm -hmm. She liked that. Then I made her go to Bed Bath & Beyond where she rode around in a very small shopping cart in the top right. with my jacket on, which was a little bit fun. Right. And she's like, Daddy, can't we do something fun? Mm -hmm. And I remembered there was a movie playing in town that seemed like an appropriate movie for uh -huh. her. It was called Lyle, Lyle, Crocodile. Yes, I love that book. Okay. Mm -hmm. The movie I don't think has anything to do with the book. Okay. The movie might be... Have you ever seen the movie Tommy by The Who? I mean, like, not, I've not sat down and watched the whole thing, but well, yeah. Well, Tommy is a psychedelically disturbing movie. Mm -hmm. It's disturbing on every level. And okay. I watched it on acid and was... When disturbed. I was a kid, I was very <laughs> disturbed. Lyle, Lyle, Crocodile is a disturbing fucking movie. Really? It's it's people, right? Yeah. And then this giant crocodile yeah. with them. Yes, that's what the book is about. And but like they're real people. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's actors. Right. And then a giant crocodile CGI. that you feel is going to eat them at any second. And the crocodile But he's not mean. The crocodile can't talk. Okay. All the crocodile can do is sing. And the crocodile sings in Sean Mendez's voice. Okay. And it is such a weird. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't a good movie. Right. I had a lot of fun. 
I had a lot of fun. Uh, Javier Bardem stars uh-huh. as, a, as a failed showman who wants to make it big with Lyle Lyle yes, yes. as his, as his That's partner. That's in the book too, yeah. That's what the book is about? No, well, the book is like these people buy it's The first book in the series is The House on East 80, 86th Street. And these people buy a house, townhouse on East 86th Street, and they move in, and there's a crocodile living in the bathtub. And they kind of uh, they take him to the zoo, but he's really miserable, and they bring him back. But he had like... Lyle's backstory is that he was like a performing crocodile with this like I think the guy was like French or something. Yeah, that's that, what the, like, toured, that is what the movie's around about. With him. That is what the movie's yeah. about. And uh it's really weird and I I, I, I totally felt like it was an out of body experience. <laughs> and after the movie I mean, I swear to God, like I'm transported in movies yeah. for some reason. Yeah. I had Susan sitting on my lap in the movie theater and I'm I'm like so tripped out <laughs> on the movie. I'm like, who is this kid? Right. <laughs> where, where did she come from? How is this my life? And then we left them and the movie's fucking weird. Music is not good, but still I, I kind of liked it. I kind of right. liked everything about this movie. Um, you're f- I, I feel like the croc. I also have this fear in me. Like it's I've had it my whole life because I've had animals in my room mm-hmm. my whole life that I forget to feed the animals and then they get hungry and they want to eat me. And I've always had this fear. I, I, for, for like, I forget about an animal and they're going to get me kind of thing. Like when I lived on 24th street, I had this old fish tank and there was a fish in that fish tank. I didn't feed the fish for a long time. And there was a fish at the bottom that ate all the fish in the fish tank. And it got to be like this big. And I was kind of lying in bed, scared, that one day it was going to do me in kind of feeling. And Lyle is abandoned in the attic without any food. And I kind of had this feeling that he was going to have to eat the Prims. He was going to have to eat eat the family. And I kind of had that feeling that he was going to eat them at any moment. I used to have nightmares about... I used to have this feeling about the dopey nation that they were like that, <laughs> that they were going to eat you, that the dopey nation, <laughs> when they, when I did something bad, were going to turn on me as right. though I had a terrarium full of giant spiders in my home that got hungry. <laughs> so like this, and so we leave the movies and Susan goes, daddy, that was the best movie I ever saw Aww. in my life. And I just start laughing hysterically. So I'm going to say that I recommend if you have a child that's around four, I totally recommend Lyle Lyle. I want to take Franklin. Crocodile. Yeah, I think uh, it's disturbing, though. You got to see it. I need to hear your opinion (laughs) about it. Um, Yeah, you got to join Dopey Patreon. Like, I'm up to my eyeballs. I mean, I don't talk about Katz's because I don't wait tables there. But next week at the New York Historical Society, uh, the I'll Have What She's Having exhibit is coming. And guess who has to deal with all that shit? You. Yeah, and I don't (laughs) want to. All I want to deal with is fucking Sean Weiss from Mighty Ducks and (laughs) Maya Solovitz and Lyle Lyle Crocodile. (laughs) So join Dopey Patreon. Last week, I put up the talk with the ketamine doctors. Mm -hmm. I think this week, I might put up the bonus MC Search opus. Two (laughs) hours of MC Search. Plus, Aaron and I are going to do something. So that's a lot of excellent Patreon content that's available. I had the most incredible experience with one of our new sponsors, ButcherBox. ButcherBox is incredible. Like... They shipped me this box and we made this barbecue and it was so good. And it was just 
such good meat. It was such a good barbecue. Linda's brother popped by. We defrosted ribs. We defrosted chicken. We defrosted ground beef. And we defrosted steaks. And it was all so good. So I don't know if you guys are ever looking for premium meats, but ButcherBox was incredible. And this episode is actually also brought to you by ButcherBox. And I, I cannot recommend it enough. This Black Friday, your search for amazing deals on high-quality protein ends with ButcherBox. ButcherBox is offering our listeners one of their best steak deals, free ribeyes for a year, plus $10 off. Get two 10-ounce ribeyes free in every box for a whole year when you join, plus an additional $10 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dopey and use dopey to get free ribeyes for a year plus $10 off. That's butcherbox.com dopey and use the code dopey to get this special Black Friday deal. If you are a fan of the show and a fan of meat, sign up. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing box of food you get. And this episode... You know, I'm very proud of this episode. I think we've been doing a lot of fucking decent work, maybe beyond decent work. I'm very proud of the work we've been doing. I loved last week's show, and I rarely talk about that. And I loved this talk. On Monday last week, Sean Weiss came to my apartment. On Tuesday, I went to Maya Solovitz's apartment, and it just blew my mind. I actually went to her office. And it blew my mind. And when I get to do stuff like that, I just, my gratitude is, is uh, immense. Actually, it's not immense. My gratitude is not nearly immense enough. I, I wind up being happy for a second, and then I go bananas, double thinking, triple thinking, worrying about the next thing, which is why this episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelpOnlineTherapy.com. And when you sign up for BetterHelp Online Therapy, you go to Better. H-E-L-P dot com slash dopey podcast and you save 10% off. And like, you know, sometimes I'm a mental patient and my brain doesn't work right and I bug out and I wish that life came with a user's manual and it doesn't. So what helps me deal with that stuff? It's online therapy. It's talking to somebody about specific solutions, how to deal with my past, how to deal with my present and how to make my future as unencumbered as possible. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dopey podcast. That's betterhelp.com slash dopey podcast. So without further ado, here she is. She wrote a book called Undoing Drugs. She writes for the New York Times. Her name is Maya Solovitz. Are you ready to, to listen to Maya again? Very ready. All right, here we go. And I am on the east side of Manhattan with renowned author, journalist, harm reductionist, addict in recovery, Maya Solovitz, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So you went to DopeyCon. I did. You were the voice, the, the, the firm but loving voice on harm reduction at DopeyCon. Yes, yes I was. And I only heard amazing things. Oh, good. 
I was not so sure how receptive the audience was, but it was hard to tell. No, I think the audience was really receptive. We did an episode recently. Like, I, I go to 12-step meetings, right? Yes. There's a guy at the meeting who smokes weed every day, and, and I find him to be very charming and sweet. And, and he told me this story about that he's a construction worker, and he works at Rikers Island Prison or jail or whatever you call it, and he smokes weed on the job. And he's working on the roof of solitary confinement, smoking pot, and blowing the smoke into the vent into solitary confinement. And I thought this was a really funny story, okay? And I had him record it for the show. And I had one of my friends, a longtime friend, as a co-host who's in 12-step recovery. And when I told her the story, she said, oh, he should keep coming back. And the audience got up into a fervor, like, how could she say, keep coming back? And I figured this was a good harm reduction topic, like 12-step versus harm reduction. You, you did 12-step recovery. I did. And did you hate the keep coming back? No, no, I had no problem with it. When I was into it, I was really into it just the way I am because I'm into whatever I'm into. Like right now you're into singing. Well, not this particular moment, but um, <laughs> I am practicing. What are you practicing to sing before we get into Jazz. So what are you singing? Like what kind um, of stuff? Stormy like, weather? Like, yes, exactly. That very song, but I'm not going to sing it for you. No chance? No chance. Okay. And uh, I read your book, Undoing Drugs. I've been reading it for a few weeks. It is so thorough and there's so much information and it's so like revelatory really around harm reduction, addiction, recovery. And as a drug addict, I was always so like miss, I, I always had a hard time with harm reduction. Like what it meant, does it mean I can get high? Like, does it mean that if, if harm reduction passes, if drugs are legal, should I be getting high instead of being sober? Like that's the way my brain works. That's the first thought I have. Did you get a lot of that? Yeah, I mean, that is a thing that, I think, especially in early recovery, people do. They have to be kind of very rigid about what applies to me applies to everybody. And that's not true. So it's like the fact that a drug may be legal or illegal doesn't mean that you should do it. You know, and the idea... <laughs> I sound like the stupidest person in the world no, by no, leaving no, no, with No, 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 no. But I, I really get that. And I'm glad you voiced it out loud because... That is what a lot of people in the program think, consciously or unconsciously. They think that, well, if I see that people are controlling their use, then maybe I should try that, even though every single time I've tried that previously, it has failed. Cataclysmically. Yes, exactly. So you have to be kind of secure in your own recovery and what is right for you to engage with harm reduction when you are in abstinence recovery. And I think... A lot of people right now are actually trying to create spaces where people can be together, whether they're using or in recovery or whatever, without having that conflict. And I think the key to not having that conflict is what is good for me may not be good for you. And what works for you is what you should keep doing. And what doesn't work for you is what you should not do. And so as long as you don't personalize it like that, it's very easy to see that somebody who is actively using is better off if they're using a clean needle, for example. Right. And they're, and they're around somebody that can make sure that they don't die. Exactly. And, you know, as they say, dead people don't recover. Right. 
And that is the thing of harm reduction. We care about people at every stage of the journey, whether they're abstinent, whether they're completely chaotically using, whether they're in some stage in between, whether they're taking medications, whether they're not taking medications that they should be taking, whatever it is, we meet you where you are and we try to be compassionate and help you move to the best place for you, which is going to be very different for different people. I mean, some people, I'm sort of horrified because I'm afraid that the people in Rikers in solitary might be getting paranoid and not know why. They know <laughs> but, why. It's not like an odorless smoke going well, okay, down. Okay, that's a good, that's a very I'm good I'm sure point. they recognize the smell. Yes, okay, okay, that is a very good point. I hadn't thought about But that. what is this smell and smoke coming down into the cell? No, no, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them would be grateful for any distraction, but there shouldn't be solitary confinement, period. It is torture. And it is just outrageous that people in jail who are not even often convicted of anything, are put in that situation. Anyway, digression. Um, Imagine you're like a hardcore big book thumper in solitary confinement and the smoke comes down and you can't evade getting high in that moment. Are you grateful for the reprieve? Because it, you know, that's a very that's a very interesting hypothetical question, and I think one of the things that a lot of people in twelve step believe, but is not actually true, is that if you take a single sip, you are doomed to binge. Now, I get the idea that the first drink is what gets you drunk. I totally get that, and what that means to me as a person in recovery is that I am going to avoid taking the first one. And that is what it is supposed to mean. It doesn't mean that once you do it, you should you're just done. say, fuck it. Yeah, and I'm done. shooting dope. Fuck right, it. exactly. And so, but a lot of people believe that. It's called the abstinence violation effect. Um, Alan Marlett um, named it. And basically, if you believe that sort of recovery and um, active using are two discrete states, and that if you are out of one, you have to be in the other, and you will be completely powerless when you are in that other state, then your relapses will be worse. There's like research on this. But the other research I thought was really interesting was they took a bunch of people who have alcohol use disorder but were not interested in quitting. And they told them they were doing a whiskey tasting. I remember this. I yes. Read, yes, and I, this is in yes, the book. Yes. And so basically they drank more if they believed what they were being given had whiskey, alcohol, whether or not it actually did. And so that tells us something interesting about how expectations affect our behavior, which is profoundly. And so I think obviously it is a great idea if the idea of the first drink or the first drug gets you fucked up. If that works for you to avoid the first one, then use it. But if you haven't successfully done that, then recognize that you are not actually powerless and you don't have to binge. Now, you may be less in control of yourself and you will maybe have your priorities shifted again because of the way addiction affects the brain, but it doesn't mean you're a zombie. And we all know that we're not zombies when we're actively addicted because we don't shoot up in front of the police. We don't, you know... Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, it, it's stupid to do. Some yes. people do do yes. that. But for the most part, people try to plan to get high and avoid detection. Right. Which means that we are acting in some sense, voluntarily. Now, we are not acting as voluntarily as you might be acting if you are not in an active addiction. But 
it's not like you're a zombie and you have zero control. Right. Your brain works. You can figure out how to score. You can figure out how to do a million things. And so like, this is why I think the debate over addiction gets so complicated because we want to believe it's black and white. Either you're a zombie the moment you pick up or you are, um, there's, it's all choice and you're choosing it always and you're completely responsible for all everything. And so it's in the middle and that is frustrating because we want to be able to say this person this is their fault and this is not their fault. But you can't necessarily do that all or the time. Or conversely, you want to say, this is how you can get better. This will yeah. work and you can get better if you do this. One thing that I find to be frustrating, and, and I think you have a, a really amazing base of knowledge and obvious the research you did in this book is off the charts. As somebody who got sober in 12 step, you know, and I hated 12 step and I didn't want to get, I didn't want to do it. I just, I, it was the last thing. And, and I, I really didn't want to keep using. And I was as desperate as I could have imagined being, and I needed help. And then we started doing the show, right? And I had been on methadone for seven years or something. And, and when I was on methadone, I bought heroin, you know, beforehand, or, or I'd buy pills when I was getting the methadone and I would smoke weed afterwards. And there was no using methadone to be abstinent. It was right. strictly because I couldn't afford heroin. Right. So when we started the show, I would be like, if you're on methadone, you're not in recovery. You're just prolonging your addiction. And and Chris, who uh, passed away and emailed you in the beginning, yeah. would always say, no, 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 because he had been studying it and he had been around it way more than me. When he passed away, I realized that I needed to get a different take on this because I was going to alienate a ton of the listeners. Yeah. And... It wasn't even correct because I had spoken to a bunch of people on methadone that were using it the way they were supposed to. So we, I wanted to come up with something because I also thought nobody would listen to the show anymore. And I wanted the show to become a movement rather than a show. So we started talking about this alt recovery movement, which was a big tent where everybody was welcome under yes. the big tent. You can be harm reduction. You can be NA. You can be Dharma, smart recovery, whatever. Is there a big tent like that? Yeah, absolutely. What is it? And it, well, I mean, I would argue that it is harm reduction because harm reduction can include all of those right. things because harm reduction is about people choosing the path that works for them and about recognizing that people do have agency even when they're in active addiction while they may be compromised to some degree it does not mean that they are not adult human beings who can make choices and what we know about the way human psychology works is that if you give people options, it is much more effective than if you say, you must do this. Right. I mean, this even works with a two-year-old, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so the- It's a great strategy with a little kid. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. And so, but I mean, but the same thing works on adults because it's just how we're wired. And so the more actually, and, and this is why the concept of powerlessness in 12-step can get you into trouble sometimes. If you are just saying, I am powerless over substances and I cannot control my use once I start, that is an absolutely valid interpretation of that. But if you start to say, I'm powerless over politics, I'm powerless over relationships, I'm powerless over my life, that can really be a problem. It limits your ability to do anything. Exactly. And it, it also, yeah, it just makes you passive in a very weird way. And I think obviously, you know, the serenity prayer speaks to that about the things you can change and cannot change. 
I always thought the serenity prayer was funny because I thought the wisdom to know the difference should be obvious, um, but it isn't. Um, and this is how you know you've gotten older. Um, but, you know, the thing here is this is a complicated thing. And it's that is for funny, though, people. because like I think I thought that, too, before I needed the serenity. Prayer. Exactly. And exactly. Then, I, then it turned out I wasn't sure if I knew the wisdom. Yes. Between the two. And then now I kind of feel like I do. And then the other funny thing about it all is that in 12 step, it has a door open to people who don't want to do it. You know, it's supposed to be inclusive. It's all suggestions. Yes. And somehow everybody's scared of everybody as though it's religion or as though it's race. And it's like people being fearful of each other's choices as opposed to embracing people getting better. And I think like that's, you know, it's it's hard to accept if you're a person who loves drugs that some people can control it and you can't. It's hard to accept. It's really It's hard really to frustrating. And it can make you jealous. And I think a lot of the rigidity and the judgment comes from that fundamental unfairness like those people can do it and I can't. But that's okay. You know, and I think we can take a lot from the disability rights movement by understanding sort of how this can play out and that, you know, you're not a better person because you don't need Prozac or you don't need methadone or whatever. And I want to say that I used to during I was briefly on methadone, which was a nightmare for me because in I was, New York. Yeah. In Where Queens. did you go? Okay. And I think the program's still there. It's near the 59th Street Bridge. It was supposed to be a 21-day detox, which I brutally failed. And then it was supposed to be a six-month detox, which I also, every time they lowered, I just raised up my cocaine and heroin. So it was like really. And then, but the thing at the end of it, and it was gross, you know, you had to pee. Like, you know, I would be up all night shooting coke and then I couldn't pee. And then I, it was just terrible and humiliating. And, you know, they could have just asked me, were you using? Yes. I was up all night using coke, you know, but I feel like they always asked me. They I, no, no, no. And I mean, they were always also just like the counseling there. They would basically be like, go to NA. And I'd be like, well, why would I want to go to NA where they are not going to accept me as being in recovery if I'm on this? Like, I just, I was like, also like, you know, if that worked, I wouldn't be here. It's like, go to NA and lie. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's the worst, know, worst advice you could right. give. Well, I mean, like, at least they could say go to AA because at least in AA you can actually be honest about what medications you're on because the program has no judgment about whether you're on medication as long as you're honest with your doctor. I mean, they have that very useful pamphlet, We Are Not Doctors, and I think, you know, it would behoove NA to... Um, Figure it out. But yeah. it's But it's, it's too broad there's too there's too many pockets it's like alcohol is a drug all these other drugs are drugs they it's it's almost impossible to sort out for narcotics anonymous or well, how I would mean, you I, I think you know basically if you are taking medication as prescribed you are in recovery if you're stabilized like i mean if you're taking other stuff on top and you are nodding out in meetings you're either on the wrong dose or you're using on top and you know that is you can say in the harm reduction definition, it's you're making a positive change. At least you're not using fentanyl every day, whatever it is. But in terms of the NA definition of recovery, I think why should we see methadone any different than Prozac? And we should be okay with Prozac too, because sometimes your brain chemistry needs something. And see, in NA though, there's this idea that like you're always high when you're on methadone or buprenorphine. And that is simply not true. And 
I think the misperception comes from the fact that if you do alcohol maintenance, you will always be slightly impaired if you're like drinking 24 seven, but you really have a high tolerance. So you won't be like, if I had to pick which drunk driver to drive with, I would pick the guy with a higher tolerance. Yes. Not that I would do such a thing, but you know what I mean? Yes. So the point here is that alcohol does not create complete tolerance to its intoxicating effect, but opioids do. And so if you are, I mean, I could be on 200 milligrams of methadone and you wouldn't know, maybe my eyes would be more pinned than they are, but that would basically be it. What I, about somebody who has panic attack disorder and they're on a low dose of clonopin? Exactly. I just think all of that, you know, it's not about what's in your blood. It's about what you're doing to improve your life. I feel like when I went to NA, it was you could take stuff as prescribed. I remember like I had a dental thing. I just, oh, yeah, you can totally. I mean, but the thing is that, but they explicitly disallow methadone. Yeah. Oh, and, right. Because uh, it's not prescribed for an acute thing. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's basically like they see it as cheating. See, I want to get to your story really badly. I also, though, my one of my favorite things is the underlying definition of recovery that's laid down in the book. And sure. I think that our audience will love it. So you want to break that down for the audience? Yeah. So the Chicago Recovery Alliance, which is actually a needle exchange, but they called themselves that deliberately because they wanted to recognize that, you know, using a clean needle is a step in recovery. You know, I mean... And Recovery Alliance sounds way less dopey than needle exchange. Yes, exactly. And so the neighbors were not as upset. Right. So they, they knew that like, okay, we're seeing that we're giving clean needles, people are improving their behavior and reducing their risk. So obviously they are not zombies. They can make positive changes in their lives. And so, well, we need to recognize that if recovery isn't this on-off binary, then it's got to be something. And so they were like all prepared to have a big fight over how do we define this, whatever. But then the first guy who spoke said, it's any positive change as determined by the person making that change. Any positive change as determined by the person making that change. It's self-diagnosed, just like being an alcoholic Exa or being a no, drug No, exactly. Addict. And so, you know, I mean, obviously this makes people who want to count their days very frustrated. And so this is why I also mention that Faces and Voices of Recovery has this idea of I'm a person in recovery and for me that means X, Y, and Z. And so... I think if you don't like the sort of loosey-goosey, any positive change, you can totally go with, I define recovery for me. And for me, that is, you know... I like the loosey-goosey personally. I do too. And I mean, I think that like it is, it is dangerous to base people's status on how long they've been abstinent. Um, I think that, you know, it's a good thing to celebrate that, you know, you're getting further away from chaos. Um, but, you know... Let's say I have 10 years and I slip for one day. My 10 years is it's, erased. And I was saying on I, at, at the, DopeyCon, at DopeyCon yes. that like, you know, no, what I think you should do is like you get 90 days, you get your 10 years back because your 10 years isn't erased. You were sober for 10 years. But that's just a weird statusy thing in general. Yes. You and know? I mean, but I get like that, like, you know, especially when you're new, like you see people who have like seven years, 10 years, and you're like, oh, wow, you know, but that can be dangerous in the sense of some people who have 10 years, seven years, whatever, might actually be like sociopathic rapists. Exactly. Because the, I mean, that's where it gets into another thing, which is abstinent, sober, recovery. Like these are all yes. words that determine 
you know, you can be abstinent, but if you're dry, you're not sober. Right. But you're, are you in recovery? Well, and I mean, I think like that dry drunk thing, while I understand the phenomenon it is trying to describe is not really helpful. Explain. Well, because it sort of means that anytime you act badly, you're addicted. Right. And that's your addict self. You're dry. Yeah. 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 And so it's really, you know, and also like it also says that basically if you're not working AA's 12 steps, you're dry. They didn't have a good one for NA though. There wasn't a dry. Like I can't think of like a good drug version of dry. I guess it would be clean, but I really. No, they like, oh yeah, you're clean. You're not sober. Right. Right. And I mean, but you know. (laughs) I mean, it's not good. Yeah. It's like, this is not a good differentiation of, of terms because people are in trouble and they're clinging to these words. And if they're not clean and sober, they're not good. Right, right. And so I think that's a problem because people who use drugs are just as good as anybody else. And so when they're using, when they're not using, some people will do terrible things. Some people will do wonderful things. Some people who are capable of doing wonderful things may not be able to do them when they're actively chaotically using. But I think we should not judge people based on whether they're abled or disabled, whether they're using or not using, whether they're, you know, brilliant or, um, you know, um, not so intelligent. Like, we all have these values that we think, oh, you know, this person's better than that person for this reason. But it's really dangerous because one of the things that prevents America from having decent policy on anything is this idea of deservingness. And so... We know that if you do housing first, which doesn't require abstinence, you can get a lot of people housed and improve their lives a lot. But we don't want to do that because they don't deserve it. They need to work for it. They need to be abstinent in order to earn the housing. And, well, okay, but that isn't what works. You know, it also doesn't really make any sense. No, because no. it's like you're abstinent, and then it's like then it's levels of how good you are. Yeah, and I mean, again, like it's just like let's accept the baseline that human beings are all precious and valuable. And we're never going to live up to that in terms of like, we're still going to have judgments in our head and be like, you know, I mean, unless you're like Jesus or something or Moses or whatever. <laughs> the, um, Jesus was supposedly a really good Jew. So Jesus, yes. okay, Jesus there, is good for Jews. Too. That's okay. Okay. Yes. All right. I think I can go with that. But anyway, you know, just recognizing that these judgments are problematic And also recognizing that, you know, we like to have markers in our lives like, you know, anniversaries, this and that. And I don't think that's necessarily problematic as long as we distinguish it and recognize that if you have your 10 years, you always have your 10 years. Um, Because you earn them. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, and I think I might have mentioned this at DopeyCon also, but there's that apocryphal story of the Irishman who is in AA and he gets drunk once a year on St. Patrick's Day. And so he only always has a year. Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is actually a true story. It can't be, but I, I mean, it could be. Yeah, I, 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 mean, would lo- I would love that. Yes, you know, exactly. I, I, if anyone out there is clean and sober, but only has almost a year or I guess like eight months because St. Patrick's Day is coming, whatever, maybe oh, right. six months, please write in because I want to know, or, or maybe you use on your birthday right. and you right. only get the year. And right. you use on your birthday because right. that, that's right. a really interesting idea of a phenomenon. I mean, and, and I'm not saying again, like, you know, and this is this is the thing, like there are people who have levels of control over their drug use that are intense. Right. Um, you know, and then there are and but who still have negative consequences and qualify as addicted because of that. But, you know, they can do that like 
twice a year have a binge or whatever. You know, I wouldn't want to risk that personally. Yeah, I wouldn't want to. I mean, like, I would love to be that person. And I just can't. I mean, no. I could risk it. Yeah, I don't want to risk it. It's not worth it. And I mean, I think that's the thing that we have to understand. Like, when we think that, you know, we're jealous of this person because they can use sometimes, we know that for us, like, that would be risking all of the work we've done. And it's just not worth it. You know, again, people are going to make different decisions about different substances based on their own, you know, experiences with them. And some person may be like, I don't think I could ever control cocaine use and I don't have any desire to. You know, I can smoke some pot and it's not going to kill me. See, my jumping off point is is maybe weed and and cigarettes. Like, I, I mean, I don't I'm not dying to do heroin. Like, I'm not I'm just not like last time I, I, I had stopped doing heroin and in, in, I want to say 20 12 or 2013 and then I fucked around with pills here and there and I did heroin one more time right and it was not good right it was right. bad it was overwhelming I got overwhelmingly high it was like it was not a it's good probably feeling. fentanyl I don't think it was oh, interesting I, I but I but it was I wasn't prepared for it like I shot right. a bag I was like this is bullshit then I shot like three bags and I was way too high and that was the last time I got high which was probably around ten, on heroin right probably around 10 years ago weed I was I was in love with my whole life and cigarettes, somehow I became very interested in smoking. And I can't imagine having... I could think about smoking all the time. I think about smoking weed and I think about smoking right. cigarettes. Right. But I really can't imagine smoking one cigarette. Like, I cannot right. imagine. Right. I wouldn't right. want to. I would want to just be able to smoke. And the same with bud. Like, I wouldn't need to smoke all day, every day. But if I smoke today, I think I'd want to smoke tomorrow. Right, so so right. like, and that's just the way my... Right, exactly. And so like, it's it's different because like, I just sometimes use it for sleep, you know. Were you ever in love with weed? No. Okay. And that, I mean, you know, I kind of thought I was when it was the only drug I knew. <laughs> Where did you grow up? So I was born here in the city, but then when I was six, we moved upstate, about an hour upstate, to a town called Greenwood Lake, which was best known for, at the time, the drinking age was 18 in New York and 21 in New Jersey. So everybody would come to Greenwood Lake, which was half in New York and half in New Jersey, to the lower age part to get wasted. So it was like all bars and gas stations. And what was, uh, what was your first getting altered? So... I did try a cigarette when I was in seventh grade and I absolutely hated it. I was just like, ugh. And I do also remember just like from drug education being like, okay, I'm going to have to do something to be cool and not be so geeky. So, okay, cigarettes seem like they kill you and they don't really seem to get you high. I couldn't no. understand the high. You know, alcohol, I don't like that physical out of control thing. Marijuana, psychedelics, that sounds interesting. And if I'd stuck to that, I would not be here today speaking as an addictions expert. Um, but that is not what happened. So the first actual thing was hash. I, at this point in my life, was very interested in psychedelics. I thought that I just wanted to be in the 60s and it was no longer the Me 60s. Me too. You know, and so I was like, I wanted to like find acid and enjoy, you know, experience that spiritual thing yeah, through exactly. substances exactly and so I found a girl who became my best friend who was also on this same quest and she was actually in Brooklyn and I was working on a school project that took me to Brooklyn a lot so anyway but the first thing we did and this was in her attic where it was her room was in, and she had these like those hippie beads like the Greg <laughs> Brady attic room beads yeah something like that and you know great music. She, um, she's an amazing musician. You know, it was just like, I loved it. 
And I just remember sort of enjoying staring at lights for hours. That was very cool. And but listening yeah. to music and feeling that feeling of it coming inside of you. And yes, that yes. Whole and I'm still thing. kind of curious about like whether you actually do hear the separate parts of the music better or you just think you do. Like because I could empirically test this at this point. Um, but you should. Yes, I probably should. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> But it's because it is interesting, you know, like it does seem like you can pick out like things from harmonies better. But I don't know if that's actually true. I want to know. So when when because I, I when I remember the first time I had to go to rehab, like I went to detox a lot around Manhattan, like the free place or wherever took my insurance. I go to Beth Israel or Roosevelt's or, uh, I, or spo- I used to speak at, when when I was in my 12 step period. I spoke at Roosevelt Hospital detox, like I guess once a week. For many years. That's nice. But I remember yes. I remember the first time I went to like an expensive rehab, like I got a scholarship. It's like the first scholarship I ever got in my life was to go to rehab. They gave my parents like half price to go to South Florida for rehab. And they're like, right. And, and it was the first time anyone ever asked me to write the goodbye letter to oh, drugs. Right. And my goodbye letter was to heroin. And it was like how you were this evil slut that took me away from my beautiful girlfriend which was weed that was my that was my that was my letter goodbye that's interesting and and so when you describe your own if you had stuck with yes you know weed and hash and lsd and mushrooms you wouldn't be the addiction expert that is sitting in front of me when did it start to change? So it was cocaine, basically, and I was 17, and I had this boyfriend who was, we were deadheads, and his brother, and he sold drugs to the band. Um, and so... Um, did you meet the band? Yes, yes. You, you met the, Jerry? The first day I did coke was with Jerry Garcia. I Where? actually did in a hotel room in New Haven. Tell me everything. So, like, yeah, so that was, like, I mean, you know... It's kind of a good introduction. Yes. And, you know, I don't know why we didn't start with this. Well, and like Jerry was like talking about like, you know, my name meaning meaning illusion and all of this. And it was just like, ah, tell me more, Jerry. No, I know. It was like, I mean, you know, I was like just overawed because I was like 17 and it was great. We did some coke and then we went our separate ways. You snorted coke with, with Jerry, Jerry in the hotel room. This was yes. okay. He wasn't freebasing. No, at this point he was not freebasing. What year was it, you think? That would have been, I think, nineteen eighty four. How was the show? It was a good show. All right. And I was really you know, I mean, it was just I mean, your wildest dreams, right? Yeah. And so like obviously and the boyfriend that I had at the time interestingly enough, went into N.A. not long after that. But cocaine gives you this feeling of like, I can do it. I'm powerful. Good things are going to happen. And Promise. Yes, exactly. And it is basically then all you want is more. And you rapidly stop getting even that good, confident feeling from it. You know, and it's different. <laughs> yeah, if, if you kept getting it. Right, it I know. Be, you, was, no one would ever yeah, quit. exactly. Um, but I mean, what's interesting is like opioids don't turn on you the way cocaine does. I mean, or it may take a very, very long time for that to happen. It only turns on you in terms of tolerance. Right, right. But it doesn't, it isn't like, you know, like, I mean, during my last days of shooting coke, I was just like, I knew it was going to suck and I couldn't stop myself from doing it. Like, it was just like, I'm not going to do this today. It's going to suck. I'm going to be anxious and feel terrible. It's not going to make me feel good at all. Oh, I'll just do one, you know. What was your life like when you started shooting coke? So that was... Basically, I got suspended from Columbia for selling Coke. How much Coke were you selling? You know, just like small amounts, like 
you know, eight balls and that kind of thing. Because, and the funny thing is that like, I think the selling gave me more of a social life than the drug because it was just like, you know, I was once in Jackie O's apartment, like, you know, it's like the, it was crazy. Um, What other celebrities did you sell Coke to? I try not to disclose this. I figured that was what was going to happen. uh, How about dead celebrities? Who you got? JFK Jr. No way. (laughs) Yes. Yes. He came to my dorm room with secret service people. (laughs) Did you ever see the horrible movie about, uh, Miles Davis, where Don Cheadle plays Miles. No. Oh, it's so bad. It's called like Miles Ahead. But in the movie, Ewan McGregor is this like bullshit journalist who's ferrying Miles Davis around the city in the 80s. Oh, and wow. he takes him to Columbia uh, University to a Coke dealer. That was to, not me. No, it sadly. was. But, uh, <laughs> but it reminds me of this. Like it was a scene just like that. So, right, so, right. So I mean, how did least... he know to go to you? What made you the, the, the choice? Friends. The Coke was good. Yes. I obviously had a reputation for having good product, but it was just so crazy how prevalent Coke was at that time. Right. Like, I mean, if you, even if you look at the national surveys, college age kids, half of them in the early eighties tried cocaine at least once. Can you imagine like half of this country, like of generation X, it's completely. And so also like, you have to say, wait a minute. So how come we only had, you know, 5% 5% of them end up in trouble. <laughs> well, what, what's the answer to that? The answer is that, you know, addiction rates are really dependent on how... On the person. Yeah. And one thing I definitely remember was I was selling Coke when Len Bias died. The college the Celtics. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew nothing about basketball. But I did know that it cut my business in half overnight. Right. Um, because it was an actual physical overdose from cocaine. Well, that's what they thought. It turned out it was he a heart had, thing, right? Like a heart thing. When did you start using Coke every day? It will have been when I was in early college. Like in high school, I was just kind of doing it on weekends. When I got to college, so that would be fall of 83, somewhere in there was when it really became. And then I started freebasing in probably 85, and that was definitely not good. But in 83, were you like, Fuck it. If I'm using this much Coke, I have to sell it. No, I was sort of, I already, like, my boyfriend was just like, you know, that's a really good market. And so I was, you know, it's hard to say when you actually transition into addiction, but I started selling around that same time. And it was more like I felt just so socially awkward. And if I had Coke, I knew people wanted me at the party. And so, I mean, that's a dumb reason to sell no, drugs. No, but, it's, but a, that, it's a reason to, it's like people do a lot of things just for the social aspect. Yes, and that, you know what I mean? And that really, you know, was how I felt. Like, I just, I had never been exposed to, like, rich people before, basically. And I just didn't know how to behave anyway because I'm on the spectrum. And so I was just faced with, like, always feeling like I was saying or doing something wrong that I didn't know what it was. And so, but... When you had Coke, people just overlooked that and it was all good. They were really happy you were there. Yes, exactly. You know, nobody... Which worked for everybody. You're making money, you have free Coke, and now you have people that want you to be around. Exactly. So that was a potent combination and that was also why I eventually ended up getting busted by Columbia. And then... How did you get busted? I don't exactly know. I have a suspicion of somebody might have... JFK Jr.'s uh, no, guy no, ratted no, you no, out? No, no, no. It definitely was not that. Jerry Garcia was no, like... No, no, none of that. Jerry Garcia never showed up at Columbia knocking on the door? No, 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 no. I did once... It, this was crazy. I did once bring him heroin, and it was at a time when I had decided that, like, I was abstaining for a month, and so I... 
got the heroin, I brought it to him and I didn't use. We got to slow down for a second because <laughs> I'm like, my brain is going to explode. Um, How many times did you get high or use or, or bring Jerry drugs? How many times did you hang out with Jerry? That, that was like really the only time. Two times. Yeah. I mean, one, the first one I was with the other guy. And then, I mean, I think I, I probably... Like I hung out in what they called the hostility suite, which was the hospitality suite because the band was really not getting along all that well at this time when everybody was like really fucked up on drugs. So, you know, I hung out there and saw Bobby and Brent Midland was an asshole to somebody. Uh, I don't like Brent. I, he was just jerk. I don't like the sound of his keyboard. I didn't like his singing. Like I'm, No, I'm, his singing is terrible. And I mean, although Donna was like, because she was often off. Very off. And it's just like, it's kind of amazing that she got away with that. I don't know how she, I don't, I, she didn't with me. Ah, okay. <laughs> she, I mean, I like Keith. I love his piano yeah, sound. Yeah, I yeah. love how he played. I don't like Brent. I don't like how he sang. I don't like all that synthesizer business. Like yeah. he didn't play a real piano. Like why yeah. didn't he play an actual piano? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But anyway, like what happened, what I I just saw him being like such a jerk because like... Who was he a jerk to? It was just some deadhead. And like the deadhead wanted to give him a t-shirt and he was just like, it's the wrong size. Or like he wouldn't just do the gracious thing and take the thing and throw it away. You know what I mean? Like he had to be an asshole to this person who idolized him. And I was just like, really? And he hadn't been in the band that long anyway. No, no, exactly. And so, so no, I mean, I wasn't a major supplier to the Grateful Dead. Hold on though, hold on. We didn't get to the... the oh, the heroin thing. How did it happen that Jerry's like... Maya Solovitz, I need well, you. Well, it wasn't, it basically, like, he reached out to, there was always people in the middle of this. I think, if I remember correctly, it was this guy whose nickname was Ignatz. Very, very charming guy. He would, you know, just be a middleman for people. And so I didn't, I can't remember if I actually saw Jerry. I think I did. But anyway, like, the thing was really annoying was it was my 30 days that I wasn't doing drugs. So, wow. And on the 31st day, the day after I was doing this, I could get high again, but I was just like, I am not an addict. So I'm going to prove this. 30 and days was the thing. Yes. And so I decided and day and this, 29, you're bringing heroin to Jerry. Exactly. That's insane. I know that was like ridiculous. I'm making you jump around, but I can't help it. So we were we were just starting to freebase, and I think you were just about to talk about when you started shooting. Right, right. And so... By the way, I'm yes. amazed by all this stuff. It's like because, and maybe I'm just ignorant in terms of reality, it's like you read this book, you talk about your drug use, but in the beginning and here and there, it's it's like you're, you don't talk about how full-on... No, I, I like, I mean, and you're such an expert. You're a writer for the times. You're so well respected and you were bringing Jerry heroin and <laughs> shooting Coke for a million years. And it's like, I think that's good. I think it's I better. Mean, well, I think like I have the privilege to be out about my recovery and about what I did when I was using that a lot of people don't have. And I feel it's very important for me to do that because a lot of people can't be open about it because it would have really terrible consequences for them. And I wish everybody could be open about it because then we wouldn't have this stupid drug war anymore. I mean, really, 50% of the population in Generation X tried cocaine. Like, <laughs> I mean, these days I'm like, you know, it's also a very long time ago now. So, and I'm But it's also like really, really good for addicts to read a book like Undoing Drugs and know the woman that wrote it was there. That you weren't just a, a No, no, no. I was not like, I mean, and, and I remember sort of in the early days of harm reduction, 
there were people who would identify themselves as drug users who were just like smoking pot and right. not even smoking pot every day. And those of us who had injected drugs were not cool with that. You know, I mean, we were like, you're not an expert on drug addiction. If you Well, yeah, I mean, on at least on opioid or cocaine addiction. And, you know, I just I don't know. But I do think that people who have been there and do have the ability to be out about it should be out about it because otherwise you just see stereotypes and it can often be very, very racist. So I just try to, because, you know, I don't look like what people think of when they think of somebody. And that's just because of the racism in this country. Right. And we're going to get into, into racism and, and the drug war and, and all that stuff. But first, I want to know, when did you start shooting coke and when did heroin make its way into your world? Okay, so Perfect. I was already snorting heroin when I started injecting. And the first time I injected, it was coke. At this point... When was the first time you sniffed heroin, though? So that would have been in 85 or 86. I, the years get confused at this point, but I certainly remember the exact experience. What about the circumstance? Like, So, yeah, so I was like, my boyfriend at the time hung out in this sort of seedy hotel called Carlton Arms. Where was that? It is still on 25th between 2nd and 3rd. and SRO spot. It no. was, yeah. basically, but it was also, like, kind of artsy, and, like, now it still is, and, like, all the, each room had its own, like, strange East Village 80s art in it, so it was, you know, a sort of bohemian, but very run-down... Junked-out bohemian Yes, spot. exactly, and so my boyfriend at the time used to hang out there to smoke freebase with people, and he didn't really like getting smoke freebasing with me that much because I was like sort of more in control and so he wanted to be somewhere with people who were like worse than him I always felt like but we needed to do business and so I would go and chase him out so I could get the stuff to sell it <laughs> and so and also just because I was obsessed with him so I wanted to like see what he was up to so I went there and I found out that he'd been with this other woman and horrible I was screaming and we were in the room like somebody had an ounce of heroin and we had significant amount of coke. And so I really shouldn't have been screaming. And so they're just like, here, do this. And so they gave me a line of heroin and I was immediately did not care anymore about the boyfriend. Immediately was just like, oh, I'm home. I'm safe. I'm OK. It's all good. Like in a way that I really had not previously felt. And so you know, that was kind It's so of, crazy that that's, that's what heroin does. I know, I know. And I mean, like, you know, well, I tried to convey this in an article I did for the Times recently about, you know, what your brain opioids are there for primarily. They obviously do reduce pain, but really one of their main purposes is to bond us to each other. And when you are bonded to somebody, when you're in the presence of that person, you release your endorphins. And so you feel warm and safe and loved and connected, especially like when you're a baby and it's your mom or you're a mom and it's your baby. And so when the research first started suggesting this, people were like horrified that disgusting, you know, people with heroin addiction were violating mother love, you know? <laughs> um, and in, But in fact, what that says is that people with addiction are people, you know, in emotional pain and people who have difficulty connecting for whatever reason. 
And it's so deep. It's such a it's a horribly deep fact about yeah. heroin addiction, opioid addiction. And so, you know, I mean, when society is falling apart, when everything sucks and we're all battling each other and polarized, yeah, people are going to do opioids. And some of them who have the most serious problems are going to become addicted, you know. And like this is when I get really annoyed with people primarily blaming the supply because meaning what meaning that you know i am not a fan of big pharma produce sucks i'm saying all of this they are bad they did bad things but the reason we have an overdose crisis is not simply because they overmarketed oxycontin. oxycontin and they wouldn't have succeeded in overmarketing it and in spreading opioids to all these rural communities if deindustrialization had not come first. And when you look at the crack crisis, again, deindustrialization came for black people first and, and brown people. And so you see crack introduced in these communities. Suddenly you have a way to escape and you have a way to make money. Similarly with opioids introduced in rural communities, you have a way to escape and a way to make money. Right. And you know, what two we, needs, Total, total needs of these people. Right. And so this also, once again, points to the racism because, you know, we sort of had this, oh, the white people were innocently addicted by doctors, which is not true. 80% of them were misusing someone else's prescription. Yes. And you that's know. also deep in the book. Yeah. Just and for was, anybody that's done, I mean, because I'm, I'm making Maya give us her own great history of drug use, but this book is incredible. I want to just make a plug. Anyone in, in our community would benefit from reading Undoing Drugs. That's a big, big plug. And I'll give you lots more plugs as we move forward. But when you're talking about this, it, it popped, something popped up in my head just for my own personal use. When I became addicted to heroin, I was producing TV. And I never felt better in my life than in, in the beginning because I was doing what I wanted to do. And this was making me feel the way I wanted to feel. But I couldn't keep up with my addiction. And I remember thinking... I think I can't do the math. I cannot keep up with using and I need, I don't know how much money I would need to keep up with it. And I remember the thought I said was I need to quit until I have $60 million or I'm 60 years old and then I can do it. And that was my, and I was 25 at the time or something. Wow. Yeah. But like in your travels and your research, when people have access to as much heroin where they don't have to worry about supply, how are their lives? Interesting. It's just like when you get anything else that you want, it doesn't fix you. And I think this is a really interesting thing because like when you get that big success or whatever, like you think like, okay, my life is going to be fixed now and it's all going to be good and whatever. And that never is the case. Right. It's really good to get success in things that you care about. And I'm very honored and grateful to have that. But I'm still me and I still have my weird feelings and it doesn't fix you. Similarly, if you've been chasing, chasing, chasing heroin and then you get maintained on a dose that works for you, suddenly you have a heck of a lot of time. And you certainly do feel that opiated warmth that you feel, but oftentimes the sort of chase for it and the whole organizing your life around it, now you just go to a clinic every day. And it's kind of boring. And maybe you want to get a job. Maybe you want to like see your family or have a relationship or something. It's like anything else. Like when you do get that thing that you think is going to be the perfect thing, it never is. Have you stumbled upon anybody who has access to legal heroin 
gets as much as they need and has a thriving career in life. Yes. I think... It's funny because all these conversations are why I, I had any issue with harm reduction because I couldn't have that. Right, right. No, well, I mean, and I think that what you see often is that, you know, people's lives come back together. Now, a lot of them, if you're going to really have a successful career, because of the way heroin maintenance is now, you've got to go to the clinic several times a day, which isn't conducive to that. It's unlimited. They're telecommuting. Right. <laughs> but I mean, actually, that's... They're working a, remotely um, in the heroin clinic. That might actually work better, right? But because then you could just go out and do your thing during the day. And then but you know, in the UK, I met people who were just doing totally fine on heroin when they were, you know, they picked it up like they pick up methadone, like once a week or something. What um, about thriving professionally or thriving creatively or thriving personally? It's hard to know. You yeah, know, it's, a, it's um, not a fair question. Yeah. I mean, like, there was somebody I was really close to who was on injectable methadone, and did amazingly for a while had problems later, but I don't think it was about the drugs necessarily. Because life is life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I think it's certainly possible, but I did worry for many years about, like, maybe you're on maintenance, you're doing well, but you're, you could be doing spectacularly if you were abstinent. And I think that's an illusion. We don't really see that in the data. Like, you know, you see that people are equally, if not more likely to become abstinent from maintenance versus being on the street. So it's not like you're keeping people in this sort of suspended middle state that I used to fear was a trade-off you'd have to make with harm reduction. It is possible that for some people, maintenance kills their ambition. Sometimes they say AA kills your ambition. Right. <laughs> but, right. Anything um, can kill your ambition. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's difficult, it's really difficult to know. What I do think is that we need to keep people alive and wherever, you know, where there's life, there's hope and there's hope of change. And people can decide over time what, what that's going to look like for them. Let's get back to you, though. How do you go from freebasing to crazy addiction to being like one of the experts on addiction in the world? So that's obviously a long story, but so in 1986, in September, actually on September 11th, I got arrested. The cops came into my apartment. They dragged me out. They left my boyfriend there. and For dealing. Yeah. And so I was facing like 15 to life under the Rockefeller laws. So that was really bad. And my addiction got so much worse after that. So between 86 and 88, just tons of injecting, very little work. Where were you living? I was living... In Astoria at one point, I had been in Midtown Manhattan, like 49th between 6th and 7th, when the cops rushed in and dragged me out past the doorman. So um, that was really bad. You know, sort of immediately after my parents bailed me out, I just couldn't think of anything else to do but, you know, anesthetize myself because now my life really was ruined. And by August 4th of 1988, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I found myself like begging this guy I didn't especially like for heroin because he, his girlfriend and I had gone out to score stuff. We brought it back to them. It was mostly beat and I was about to be in withdrawal and I had to go to court the next day. So I just stayed in withdrawal. I went to court in withdrawal. I was like, I need help. I knew that my mom, well, my dad always came to court, but my mom had been trying to get me into treatment. So I, my dad told the judge, 
I need to get help. I'm going to do that. My dad took me upstate to my mom's house, and then we eventually found a detox in a rehab. And so my mother was a little bit unprepared. They um, didn't know anything. Well, no, they totally, they knew. Everything. Yeah, they knew everything. But I had been so resistant to the idea of getting treatment in large part because I thought that treatment would be humiliating and socially devastating because so much of treatment actually is. Sure. But I was just like, at that point, I knew, like I had not believed I was addicted until that day and then I really saw it. And so once I believe, like, and I had, what was the thing about the day that made it different than, well, because I, so I had this weird definition of addiction. Like I thought like when you were addicted, you could no longer actually have fun from drugs and you were always kind of oppressed by the things you had to do to get them. So it was like, I knew that I saw other people, they would get to that point, the drugs didn't seem to be doing it for them anymore. And they were just still doing these things that they had to do to sustain it. And so I was like, okay, I'm clearly at that point. I'm like considering trying to seduce a guy that I really don't like. I am not judgmental of sex workers, but I couldn't do it because of my own physical things about being touched. So I just knew that that was that I couldn't do that. And, you know, I went to treatment and got very into the 12 steps for a while because that would, they always told that was the only way. And after a while started looking at the research in this area, because whenever I get interested in something, I sort of get obsessed with the literature in the area. But before all that, yeah. had you been like, I, cause you were an expert on drugs cause you did them and yes. sold them. Yes. And it seems like you're fucking supplying the grateful dead and like well, you're, well, you're very, a hippie. Yeah, what I yeah. mean is like, I was very much into William Burroughs or the yes. beats or, or, or the history of drugs. And, yes. And, no. And, and I was, yeah, I was always doing that as well. I was going to medical libraries and I mean, in, in, at Columbia, I was studying what was then called physiological psychology, which is now called neuroscience and was really interested. How does all this stuff work and did very well in those classes. So I had always been kind of torn between, do I want to be a scientist or a writer? And I did not want to, I wanted to be like a neuroscientist, MD, PhD, but I just couldn't deal with slicing up people or rats. And so... If you had to slice a person or a rat, which would you do? Oh, a rat. But, okay, I just um, wanted to make sure. <laughs> you know, but I mean, like obviously the neuroscience of people is more interesting. And obviously, like presumably you're not messing around in somebody's brain with no reason to do it. So I just ended up also because AIDS happened and because I was so outraged that nothing was being done to help people inject drugs, this was partially how I moved out of 12-step and into broader harm reduction because I was just kind of, I was like, gay people are doing something about this and we're just saying, oh, some people have to die so others may live. Like that is Stepping not, over bodies to get our recovery. Yeah, that is not okay. That is just not okay. And so I got very interested in AIDS and tried to get my methadone program to like, I had these, I think I have one of these posters somewhere here, but like showing you how to clean a needle with bleach. And they wouldn't let me because that was encouraging people, even though they knew they had the urine testing on all these people. They knew they were using, they wouldn't, you know, it was outrageous. Anyway, that is sort of how my, I intersected with harm reduction because somebody taught me to use bleach to clean needles before I got infected with HIV. How do you move from 12 step to not 12 step? Like when do you become unindoctrinated in it? So it was, 
it was partially due to this internet list. This was like the very early days of the internet in the 90s. And it was like this email list called Addict L. And it was this battle between 12-steppers and researchers about the truth of addiction. And I was tired of losing arguments. So... <laughs> I do not like losing arguments. You know, I didn't have the data on my side. So I'm like, okay. I went to meetings every day for like seven years. And I didn't use any substances from 88 to 2001. And then after that, I did sometimes use substances, but never cocaine or heroin. But I have drank and smoked pot. Did you ever try ayahuasca? No. And I have a very interesting anecdote about ayahuasca that's definitely in one of my books. But I knew the guy who... Oh, sorry. I am thinking of Ibogaine, not ayahuasca. But Either I, way, I like okay. your stories about both. Okay. Ayahuasca, puking in me just... You're not interested in yeah. that. I might be interested in DMT without all the puking, but... You never did DMT? No. I mean, it wasn't available. I did, like, during my whole psychedelic phase, I just did, you know, acid and... Mushrooms. Mushrooms and... Um, MDMA, I'm sure. No. Yes, although it did not work. Because I was on opioids and it just didn't work. Interesting. Like, and I know it was really good because everybody else got really high <laughs> and really cuddly and all that. And it didn't, it didn't touch me somehow. But, and for, for many, many years, I was like, I really, really was tempted to, to do it. But at this point, I just feel like my meds are working well. My life is working well. Right. I don't want to mess with anything. Risk reward. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, maybe later. But yeah, but so I began... The guy who discovered how Ibogaine can help with opioid withdrawal, he was addicted to heroin and he was a hippie and was getting all kinds of drugs and somebody sent him some Ibogaine and he and a couple of his friends took it and he woke up the next day and he wasn't sick and he's like, oh my God, I've got the cure for heroin addiction. This is great. And his other two friends the next day are like, yeah, we don't have any withdrawal. We're going to go buy heroin. So what, what that says to me is that you kind of have to be ready to make change. I, I that, took Ibogaine and the next day I got heroin. Ah, well, there you go. And so, like, I really hated that people sell it as this absolute cure because I do think it can help some people. But, and now I'm just thinking, I'm really curious how it works with fentanyl. I don't know. But let's, that should be in the weed study. The, the how you can separate music. Does ibogaine work on fentanyl? Withdrawal? Oh, that's right. Yes. Uh, well, the weed study is is much methodologically easier. easier. <laughs> yes. Also has a sample of one and requires no illegal purchases. <laughs> but, but ibogaine on fentanyl is a really useful question. Yeah, because like some people are are reporting really horrific withdrawal. Horrible, from what I understand. Yeah. The stuff that I'm hearing about just from our community yeah. And, yeah. And, and some some of the people that I've spoken to, it's horrible. I imagine somebody in your community has tried this and may have some experience. Yeah, so if you're listening and you're using fentanyl and you tried ibogaine, please write an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And I think what you just said is, I think it's the biggest answer to the biggest question, and it's like, what are you ready to do? Yeah. You know, you can take ibogaine and not be ready to quit dope, and you're not going to quit dope. You can take ketamine in order to get over depression, but you're not ready to move through it, and you don't do the work following up on it. You don't get through it. You know, that's just, you have to be ready, don't you? I mean, I'm not so sure about that with depression, but... What um, about just work? Because from what I understand with ketamine treatment... You can take the ketamine, but if you don't do the therapeutic work around it, it doesn't work the same way. I think 
some people just have a sheer pharmacological effect. Really? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's why in the settings that it's used in, in depression treatment, it's not with therapy. I spoke to these people that do this, and they said that it, they need, you need the therapy. That's really interesting because the clinical trials really just... Said no, it just takes, just it takes this them, molecule. Yeah, they just gave them, I mean, and... and that's crazy. It's, yeah. It's really amazing. Like, I mean, be, yeah, and I mean, but again, like, I'm sure there's something to needing to do additional work sometimes because also, like, what happens when you go away, you take Ibogaine, now you don't have physical dependence anymore, and then you go right back into the same situation where you were before... And yeah, you're probably going to need support. And if your life actually sucks until you get hope that it will no longer suck, it's going to be very difficult too. You know what I mean? I'm talking about like if you just, you know, gave somebody who is like poor and uneducated and unemployed and had a life with homeless and just gave them Ibogaine. Yeah, now they no longer have opioid withdrawal, but you haven't solved the rest of, no. of what's going on there. And so again, for some people that may be enough, but... It is rare that that is the case. Ketamine, I think, pharmacologically seems to allow some kind of reset. And I think that may be the case with some of the other psychedelics as well. I mean, I think one of the things I find really interesting about psychedelics, but also scary and that requires a lot of regulation, is that the idea of being when you're on psychedelics, you can kind of rewrite some of the patterns in your brain and you can kind of open a level of plasticity that you didn't have since maybe you were a teenager or a baby. That's really dangerous. Like in that state, you are really vulnerable. Totally. And, you know, there was already a case of sexual assault in one of the clinical trials around this. And because somebody was so vulnerable that, yeah, that, by that, the that therapist. a practitioner like took advantage. Yeah, exactly. Horrible. And right. It's and like so, a teacher or a priest or something. Well, it's, no, exactly. And so, I mean, you know, there has long been a problem with therapists sleeping with their patients, but this really ups it a level. Because um, the substance puts the person in a really vulnerable yeah, state. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, obviously, I did a lot of acid dead shows and was fine, but um, the um, some of that is just luck. I think it's a really difficult thing, but people really need to know at least and and at least be with safe people. Right. But then you have to figure out like yeah. who these people are and are they safe? I know. And I mean, especially victims of trauma, not necessarily always that good at figuring out who's, who's safe. Who's who. And so, yeah, so this is why it requires extraordinary protection, I believe. On the other hand, I think it really has a lot of promise, but we can't overhype it. Right, right. Now, you've been incredibly generous with your time and your story. Can you sum up harm reduction in three minutes? <laughs> what, what can people get? Like, like, what can we offer people? Because, I mean, from what I understand from this book, the best thing about harm reduction is, is, is its phrase itself. It reduces harm. It, yes. it, it promotes life. And, uh, and it promotes happiness, you know, through not being oppressed. Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, that old saying, meeting people where they are, but not leaving them there. Mm. And also just respecting every life, like respecting that all people are valuable, whether they're using or not. And one of the things people really don't get is like, you know, you get all these people who are saying, well, you know, somebody goes into a needle exchange and they just get needles. Nobody tells them to go to treatment. And it's like, 
do you understand what it's like to be an IV drug user? Everybody tells you to go to treatment all the time. Like it's not something you haven't heard of. It is not, you know, when you are unhoused, particularly everybody wants something from you in order for you, you know, you got to say a prayer to get your meal or whatever. Like it's like, it's always transactional. And when you go to a harm reduction site, it's not, it's just about, we want you to be alive. We want you to be okay. Here's this. And so that brings a new relationship into it. It's not like so much of a power dynamic. And so that opens the door for people to feel better about themselves. And when they feel that little bit of hope, then they will ask for help if that is where they're at. And so, you know, just telling everybody get treatment when they walk in the door is not the way to build a relationship. Well, if you go to treatment and you're not ready, what is, what's the point? Well, there's also that. What's the biggest opposition to harm reduction? Because you're, you're coming in contact with, some, with all these people that think they have the right way to do this. So what's the, the, the biggest opposition that you've had in, in, in promoting harm well, reduction people, or even discussing it? Yeah, people just think that it enables people to keep using longer and prevents them from glorious abstinence. And that is just not true. Empirically, none of the studies, whether you're looking at needle exchange or supervised consumption sites or even heroin prescribing, none of that keeps people using longer. It keeps them alive longer. And so you're more likely to get into abstinence if you participate in needle exchange than if you're just injecting on the street with no needle exchange. So the enabling argument is just flat out wrong. The whole concept is problematic because in what other disease do we want to disable people, right? That's funny. But yeah. <laughs> that, that's, but, a, that's a very good point. You know, yeah, it's, it's quite ridiculous. And it's just like, you know, okay, I get that there's a, there are messed up relationships where people Tons. use drugs to control other people. Like that happens, but that is not what we're talking about when we are typically talking about codependence, which really isn't a thing. Um, you know, like, it's like, there are many, many, many ways to have a fucked up relationship, but codependence, there's no specific thing where a person has a pathology that causes them to drive other people to take drugs. Like, it's just not. It's like, I, I remember in the book, you talk about tough love. Yeah. Like, like what a backwards concept that like worked one time and people, why do you think people embraced it then? Well, because this is America and we really like to punish the undeserving. And so we like to use punishment for just about everything. And so. And the fact the phrase tough was in there is very. Like people yes. like that. Yes. Well, also, and I mean, the idea historically of people with addiction is they're horrible, selfish, bad people who need to be humbled in order to get better. And that just buys into that whole tough love thing right there. And what harm reduction says is basically the opposite of that, which is that actually addiction is defined as compulsive drug use despite punishment. The life of being addicted is a very punishing life. It's not fun. So adding, piling on more negative consequences doesn't suddenly fix it. What does help is providing hope and providing compassion compassion, and small ways of changing that sort of encourage people to think, well, maybe I could try a bigger change. I think that's a great place to stop. You are incredibly generous. I really appreciate you coming on and by undoing drugs if you're out there and listening to Maya. <laughs> All right, that was the great Maya Solovitz. 
And and one of my favorite things that you do on the show is take copious notes on these interviews. <laughs> yes. And my notes this time were mostly, mostly like, yes, I totally agree. <laughs> and what did you what did you get? OK, so there were a couple of things. Um, one thing that I thought that actually you hit the nail on the head with is um, you were talking about um, how people become fearful of other people's choices in recovery. Right. Because either they feel jealous, like the judgment comes from like, like maybe they feel jealous or like it's unfair that somebody else's recovery might be different or might include things that yours doesn't. And I thought that that was a really good point. And I think it's especially true, especially true in early recovery. I know for myself when I was in early recovery and doing 12 steps, I felt very threatened by if somebody like wasn't going to meetings and not working a program, I felt like, oh no, they're gonna like they're gonna relapse and like their whole life is gonna fall apart. And I think it's because I had a lot of fear about my own the you know precariousness of my own recovery. Um, and then when you were talking about like psychedelics and like you know the choice to do ayahuasca or any of those things. I mean, I haven't done anything like that, and it's not like I'd say I'd never do it, but, like... like she wasn't interested in No, doing it, like Maya, I also, like, a big deterrent for me would be the vomiting. Like, I have no interest in vomiting. <laughs> I, d I spent a lot of time doing that when I was on heroin. And also, I think, like, I have also done so much work on myself, like, so much cognitive behavioral therapy to, like, make those new neural pathways... And I'm a different person than I was 20 years ago. So I don't really feel the need to like F with it. I certainly do things like new forms of therapy, like EMDR and different things. I'm all, I'm still in th talk therapy. I'm very on top of my mental health, but I don't know that that would be a necessary. Um, Psychedelics, you mean? Yeah. Like it wouldn't be a necessary thing. Again, you know, it's like never say never, but it seems to work for people. And, and you talked about like sort of like that like sort of risk benefit equation that you do. And it, every time people talk about that, I always think of this line from this Jeanette Winterson novel that I think is so brilliant. And it's this, what you risk reveals what you value. Okay. Break it down. So if you're willing to risk, you know, if, if you decide, if somebody decides to have an affair, taking that risk reveals the level of value they had in that relationship. Right. right? If you um, decide that you're going to start drinking, I mean, that's a little bit more complicated. But if you, if you, whatever decisions similar. you make it's in, in your recovery, it's sort of like you're looking at like, what are the risks? What do I value in my life right now that could be damaged by making this decision? Right. And I think that that's a lot of how I approach things in life is, is ex like kind of weighing very quickly in my head. Risk How, reward. Yeah. Well, risk benefit. Yeah. Risk benefit. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I don't think, you know, I, I found it interesting. I mean, first of all, the thing that I found the most interesting is that she delivered drugs to the Grateful Dead. Oh, Bad. my God. It's like, that was. <laughs> and JFK Jr. I was like, it was a trip. And what's her face? Uh, Jackie Onassis. Yeah. Well, well, that was probably to JFK Jr. You don't think it was Jackie? No. You don't think she was freebasing with Jackie? No. I do. <laughs> I, but it's just. Although that's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's bizarre that she sold Coke to Jerry. And even more bizarre that she brought heroin to Jerry when she was trying to take 30 I days know. off of and doing it. 
And also, she said that the first time she did cocaine was with Jerry. That was the first time? Yes. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's so wild. It's very, very crazy. And then I was also thinking about that statistic that she gave that 50% of Gen X tried cocaine. Right. Yeah, that's which uh, does. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. But when you think about that, it's like it's it goes back to the thing that I always talk about when I talk about drug education, the importance of like we're not like I'm not I don't agree with ever like demonizing substances. The substances themselves are neutral. Plenty of people try things and it doesn't ruin their life. Right. And I think that's an important part of the discussion because there's so much shame for people who are using and that can be a big you know, a big obstacle to like reaching out for help is that sort of like shame over the fact that, oh my God, I've lost everything because of drug use. And that, you know, Maya really brought this up, you know, several times. And I think it's so important that like a person isn't good or bad because of being, you know, abstinent or not. That doesn't make you, that alone doesn't make you a good or bad person. And I think that's really an important thing for everyone to, to, to I just think to I, I think it's odd that anybody could ever get confused about that. But people do. I know. But I, I think I think that people tend to feel really badly about themselves if they relapse and they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can feel disappointed or whatever, but get right back on the horse. Mm-hmm. Do do what you can do. Um, I loved I mean, like, I think harm reduction is very divisive and it shouldn't be. Right. And I think the best thing is that definition of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have it written down. I do. That the definition of recovery, it's not an on-off binary. That any positive change as determined by the per- recovery is any positive change as determined by the person making that change. I'm going to kill you the way you're holding this. I know I I like gave you that. I gave her the headphones before we started. And I said, I should have left you keep it. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. It's because I, I mean, I have it close to my mouth, but it's just like, I know the the angle. (laughs) It's like, if you have it like this, it sounds like you're in their brain, which is what we want. But you're not holding it the same way that I am. But I, for some, my face is at that angle. No, it's not. It is. It is. <laughs> okay. All right. All Trust right. me. I'm hearing it. I'm <laughs> listening to it. Um, and and Maya also. I mean, like, it's interesting because it's just like the Salem witch trial or something. It's mm-hmm. like it's like it's amazing how somebody's harm reduction fucks with somebody's twelve step or or right. somebody's twelve steps fucks with somebody's harm reduction. It's like it goes both ways over and over again. There's all sorts of crazy envy and jealousy mm-hmm. and distrust right. and 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 judgment. Mm-hmm. And in reality, it's like fuck all that shit. It's like give it away, like right. be done with it and and I mean the the coolest thing about all of it, it's like that definition of recovery mm-hmm. and the idea in 12 step is that it's all inclusive. It's, it's broad and it's supposed to be right. all inclusive and everybody per it's like perverting Jesus's will or something, <laughs> you know, not that I know, or Jesus's teaching, right. You know, not that I know enough about that, but I do know that Maya Solovitz was another sort of Bruce Springsteen esque guest for dopey. She was fantastic. She was, she delivered, she, and, and, uh, she delivered the dopey as well. Mm-hmm. I kind of felt bad that we didn't do more of a history of harm reduction show. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we'll do that another time. Yeah. You know, uh, I want, do you want to do an email, a voicemail or an ask Aaron? Um, 
Let's do, is the email really good? I don't know. All right, let's do the email. All right, you want to read it? Sure. It starts there and it goes there. This one at the bottom? Yeah. Okay. Dave, been listening for a couple of years now. I started at first episode and listened in order until Chris died. I never read the description, so I didn't know it was coming, and it fucking hit hard, my dude. Mm-hmm. I was a hilarious. I was a hilarious. He misspells heinous. I was a heinous junkie for 15 years. I've been out of a six-month rehab for three weeks. Ooh. My wicked baby mama kicked me out, left me broke, phoneless, homeless, sockless, no clothes. I got nothing and keeping my kids from me. I have every excuse to get high and somehow against all odds, I'm sober. Now for a little dopey story in hopes you will send me socks. So Frankie, you, Frankie used to hit me up. I'd give him rides to Home Depot, Target, Walmart, etc. so he could boost shit. Then I'd bring him to the pawn shop to sell it. In exchange, he would give me dope. So one time I'm sick AF. He calls. I pick him up. We go to Walmart and this fuck is in there for like an hour. He comes out with some ring doorbell cameras. The whole ride he's just going on and on about Pokemon and I don't fuck with Pokemon. (laughs) I don't fuck with Pokemon either. I'm so I'm dope sick annoyed and just want to get some drugs and get the fuck away from this guy. So after Walmart he wants to go to Home Depot. Once he gets out at Home Depot I see the stash of stolen electronics from Walmart and decide I've had enough of Frankie, so I split and leave him at Home Depot. I stop at McDonald's and puke in the parking lot a few times. Ooh, I have puked in so many fast food parking lots. Uh, Side note. So after Walmart, uh, wait, sorry. Uh, Probably 90 minutes later, I get to the pawn shop to sell the shit Frankie boosted from Walmart. I'm waiting in line, and this dude comes in and gets behind me in line. It was fucking Frankie. He starts talking to me like I just... Like I didn't just ditch his ass and steal his stolen shit. So I get my money from the pawn shop. He sells his Home Depot goods. Then he gets back in the car. We go to the dope man, score, get high, and I drop him off. Never once did either of us mention the fact that I left him at Home Depot and took his stuff he stole fair and square. For real though, Dave, I'm down and out, but still sober. Send this junkie some socks. Sincerely, the sockless dope fiend. It's a great story. Yeah, that's pretty good that he's like right there behind him. I don't know why Frankie didn't mention anything. I would have been so upset if I was Frankie. I spent so much time in pawn shops at like during that crack relapse. What were you pawning? Everything. Did you get anything back? I got some stuff back. So when I, this was like right, this was before the second time I went to rehab. And um, when I got out of rehab, my dad flew out. And went with me and like anything that wasn't lost, like paid all my pawn tickets and then didn't get like a lot of it didn't give back to me, like gave to my mom to hold or something. And but I did lose some important things and sold some. I mean, I just I sold everything. I never I never pawned anything. I never (gasps) went to a pawn shop, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, like what I would do is I would take all of my books and they had a, a Barnes and Noble annex on fifth Avenue mm-hmm. and I would sell <laughs> my books there or I would sell my books at the used bookstores on 18th and fifth, right. you know, between fifth and sixth or, uh, I ha- every piece of electronic gear I had, I sold to B and H right. every pe- I never, just never got anything back ever, right. ever. And when I go to B and H, I still think about that spot. I mean, like, 
I think of that every time. Like I remember like at Amoeba in LA, Amoeba Records, you could go. I mean, I sold records there. Yeah, me too. And, dvds at the time and then like at wasteland i'd go and bring in just like rat like you know bag after bag of like designer clothes and one of like my one of my friends she called me because she was in wasteland and saw like (laughs) saw several items that she knew were mine and called me because she knew i wasn't okay but she didn't buy them Mm -mm. well that would have been nice i know and the sockless Dope Fiend definitely is going to get socks. Um, if anybody wants socks, I, I guess I should post them. There's a bunch of shit that I have for sale. Also, we have other merch, tons of Dopey merch. The Forever in Debt limited edition is about to be done, so if you wanted it, you should go get it. Wait, I want to say something else to this guy. Oh, what I else? say something else? Yeah. So I just want to say you're like three weeks in. This is like the shitty, sucky part. It sucks. I mean, I feel like it's worse than when you're like kicking because I don't know. It's like when everything's just it's less to exciting. Settle. It's less exciting. You're not in. You're not in. You know the adrenaline rush of these extremes. But it's okay that your ex has kicked you out and is keeping the kids away right now. That's not. This is impermanent, and she may be doing that for her own self-preservation. What the best thing in the world that you can do for yourself and for those kids is just keep showing up for your life. And by showing up for your life, whatever, however you're managing your recovery, they'll come do back. that. They'll come back. They'll come back. And you're or maybe ha- maybe it'll change. Like, that's what I did. Yeah. I was out of my uh, out of my daughter's life. Yep. And, uh, but then, and I say this to you, Sockless Dope Fiend, because I was in your exact situation. Mm-hmm. I, w- I, I visited her using, and then I visited her not using, and I paid Linda every month whatever they told me to pay mm-hmm. and i made sure i never missed a visit and yep. i never missed a payment because they can't fuck with you then right and if you you're i mean it's rough but invest invest in the visits do, just do whatever you can do because it will pay off it will pay off and because your kids are worth it and also it'll feel good for you it'll totally feel good for you both both are true i got this other note mm-hmm. from this guy Montana, Montana. I don't want to say his last name. Okay. It's a guy. Uh, he, he just, I have been in touch with him for a long time. He, uh, he wrote, I just got back from, he's in treatment. Okay. I just got back from treatment. Wait, I think I remember this guy. Have you read his emails before? You know, my memory is really bad. Uh, (laughs) I just got back from treatment living in, like, I swear to God, when we were reading that one, I had heard a story really recently about someone stealing rings from Home Depot. And I don't know who it was. And I'm and I'm thinking like, I don't remember. Like Dopey Nation, please, I'm sorry. <laughs> like I don't know why I don't remember. Do you think I have like something really wrong with me? No, I mean I think we're old. I think I mean I think it's short term I mean, my short term memory is just not as good. My long term memory is really good, my short term memory not as good as it used to be. I think it's because I'm under a deluge of information all the mm, time. That could be too. Like constant communicating yeah. with constant people as I'm doing two things at once right. or something. That's what I'm going to tell myself. It's it attention. Is. And it's not early onset dementia. No. Okay. Anyway, this is Montana. I just got back from treatment living in an Oxford house in Austin, Texas. I hear there's a strong recovery community here. I'm excited to get into it to find it. I just put on Dopey for the first time since I got home immediately that feeling that I need to use went away. 
It's still fucking hard, man, like diamond, but it's not sparkly and shit. I do want to share this. Everyone I spoke to in treatment, uh, I went on and on about dopey and nobody (laughs) fucking knew what I was talking (laughs) about. They finally had to tell me to shut up. If you ever see it's rough. If you ever get an email from anyone in Austin, Texas, could you share my email address? I need friends and I'm lonely. I actually had my 30th birthday in rehab and compared to me, everybody in my sober house is old as shit. I don't want to go feed birds in the park and have an <laughs> early bird lunch at IHOP with a 50-something-year-old fart. Um, why well, do you make that face? Because we're really close Shh, to 50. <laughs> don't talk about that. <laughs> uh, Montana, first of all, you're going to get some socks, too. Send me your address. I will send you some socks. Maybe I sent him socks, and I don't remember. But man, I said that I was going to uh, read that. So Texas Dopes. If you want to meet Montana and get an early bird lunch at the International House of Pancakes, uh, let's make it happen. Send me a, an email. Then he wrote me back. Oh, no. He wrote, thanks, man. I, w- I want to get into recovery activism here, but I'm not sure what to do. I've reached out to a few people on some phone lists trying to get in touch with some younger people in recovery, and they oh. stopped texting me. They stopped texting back as I asked. These people here suck balls and dick at once and not in a cool way. <laughs> I'm fucking trying. I'm doing well for myself for the most part. But what about when I'm not doing okay? I'm sending out SOS texts and fucking nothing. You said you'd pass on the message to some people. He's giving me his phone number to read here. I'm not doing no, it. No, don't, don't read his Montana, phone number. Montana, I'm not going to read your number. But, but I, he, if anybody reaches out, I'll give it to them. Is he in the Dopey Nation Facebook he, group? Montana, are you in the Dopey Nation Facebook Join group? Join it. There, is, there are Dopey Zooms all week long. Yeah, there's 26 you, Zooms a yeah. week. And there's so many, like, I mean, listen, y- even if you don't have people, like, down the street from you, you, <laughs> I can't get the angle right on this damn microphone because I don't have Just talk directly up. into it. That's what I was doing, and then you put them up like this. Oh, now you give them to me at the end of the show. Hold on. All right. Okay, now, see, now I can hear myself. You should have had it the whole time. I know, whatever. I just, it's fine. I'm scared the show's not happening if I don't hear it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Montana, go to Dopey Zoom. Fucking go Dopey Nation on Facebook. If you're not on Facebook, write me again. I'll give you the Dopey Nation Zoom schedule Mm -hmm. and the address. If anyone else is out there in Texas that wants to and is in recovery and wants to suck Montana's dick and balls at the same time. Please write me at dopeypodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. So we're going to do a voicemail. Okay. In the old days, there was a great storyteller named Tim from uh-huh. Philly. This is Paul from Philly in the great tradition of Philadelphia dopey storytellers. You ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Hey, Dave. Hey, Dopey Nation. I'm a huge fan. I've been listening for about two years now. I'm actually also a Karen alumni or drop out, kicked out, depending on who you ask. Could have something to do with the fact that I met my wife there. They weren't really down with that, but that's another story. The story that I was thinking about was before I went there, I was homeless in the area for about four months. So in the middle of my run, at this point, I'm big into drinking, meth every day, benzos, opiates when I could get my hands on them, and that was just my thing. And the thing is, when I was homeless, I couldn't really just sit at the kitchen table and do my drugs like a normal person. I mean, I had to do them on the go. So it would be me driving, 
and at the stoplights, load up a little powder meth into the pipe, smoke it. And then I'm going this one day, doing my thing, and it's just not taking me to the level. I mean, it's good, it's great, but I need more. And I remember, I got some acid in the trunk. That's going to do it. So I pull over, I take a U-turn, it's immediate, into this neighborhood, I don't care who's around, pop the trunk, open this little tea bag jar I had, hidden in the bottom, there they are, the two tablets, take them, one, two, done. And now, I'm just going to walk around, wait for them to kick in, wait to start tripping, and before that even happens, I start smelling myself. I mean, I smell like shit. My hair's greasy. My clothes are dirty. I need a shower. And it's, it's starting to hit me as I'm passing these houses. Like, this place kind of got a nice shower. They might have a nicer shower. But then I see the house that has the shower. That's the one. But I can't just go busting in the front door. So I got to do a little recon. I climb up in her tree. Lose track of time like you do when that acid hits in. Could have been 20 minutes, could have been 5 hours. I don't know. But the next thing I do know is that this black SUV pulls into the driveway, creeps in. And this old lady, she pops out of the... I shouldn't say she popped out. She kind of hobbled out, makes her way slowly to the front door. She's fumbling with her keys, finally unlocks it. And I'm thinking maybe she doesn't remember to relock it. But again, I got to wait for my moment. And the moment is when she turns her bedroom light on because I know now she's not in the living room. It's time. Jump out of the tree, land on my ass, bounce back up, open the front door. Thank God it's unlocked. The problem is, to the right, there's, I mean, I know I'm tripping, but this husky that she had was 700 pounds. And he is staring into my soul. He's got everything. Judgment, disgust, maybe a little bit of pity, I'm hoping. But he's looking at me, I'm looking at him. Before I can say anything to him to try to ease the situation, he looks at me and he just goes, It's okay. I know you're hungry. Go get some food. And he nods to the kitchen. I'm like, Okay, this is the new deal. Forget the shower. So I'm walking to the kitchen. I see his bowl. It's full of kibble, but on top, he's got these three chicken wings smothered in hot sauce. I mean, these things are ready to go polishing them off to the bone, scattering them back into the kibble so it's not looking suspicious when old lady Greta comes back out. I see she's got a bottle of wine on the counter for me, and it's missing one cup. So I figure that anybody that can drink one cup of wine, I mean, they're not going to notice if the whole rest of the bottle is missing. Chug that, and then I hear a thud in the bedroom. I'm not a monster. I'm going to go check it out run slam myself into the door i mean from my ear to my feet i'm pressed up against practically humping that door and i'm starting to listen and over time i can hear she's okay she starts moving stuff around i think she's just getting ready for bed that's all right again lose track of time and it starts to wear off i mean i guess the alcohol kind of sobers up the acid i don't know how that works but it does so I'm, it's starting to come across me how bad of an idea this is. I mean, she could come out here at any second. She could call the cops. The dog could eat me. I don't know. So what I do know is I need to get the hell out of here, run out, drive off. And that was not the end of my addiction, but I can tell you that was the last time I did meth combined with acid. 
All right, that's a fucking crazy story. Did he <laughs> say in the beginning he was on meth and LSD at the same time? I, d- I guess I didn't catch the fact that he was also on meth when he took the LSD, but yeah. He basically did a home invasion. Yes. <laughs> to, to take a shower. Right, but never took the shower. No, the dog instructed him to eat chicken wings instead. From the bowl. <laughs> did he? But the dog had the chicken wings I, in then his I'm bowl. Like, I see, so part of me is like, did he imagine that they were chicken wings? I don't know. I think there's a lot of questions, but still, it was a fine story. I can't believe the husky let him in. I mean, that the husky like didn't disturb him. Maybe the husky was like Lyle, Lyle, crocodile, and, and was wasn't even real. Oh, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Paul, we have a lot of questions. Uh, you get socks though, so send me your address, and I will send you some socks. Um, Dopey Nation, we need. Short, funny, dopey voicemails. Yes. Send them into dopeypodcast at gmail.com. We need reviews. You go to iTunes, you leave a review. That would be wonderful. Um, I think that's the show. There was something else I wanted to talk about, but I don't remember. Go to Patreon and hear me and Aaron uh, this week on Patreon. Yes. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Maya Solovitz really delivered. Thank she you, Maya Solovitz. Thank you, Paul from Philly. Thank you, Dopey Nation. Thank you, Stoner Sean on Long Island. Thank you, all you judgmental harm reductionists out there <laughs> judging Aurora. How dare <laughs> you? How dare Just you? Just for the record, Aurora, I'm she not doesn't listen. judging she you. Listens, oh, okay. She listens like a little bit less than you do, <laughs> which, which should tell you how much she listens. <laughs> no. All right. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Toodles. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had and I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this aeroplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road, however far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad
That's all I ever had. That's all I ever had.